1879, a school was opened by the U.S. government as an off-reservation boarding school for Native American children. Nine years later, the most famous student of them all was born in what is now Prague, Oklahoma. He would later team up with a man known as one of the early pioneers of football at this very school, and it all revolved around a city in Pennsylvania called Carlisle. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is May 28th, 1888, and we are in what is now Prague, Oklahoma. We're here to witness the birth of the NFL, baby. Well, I mean, (laughs) wait a second. I thought that the birth of the NFL wouldn't happen until like, I don't know, 32 years later, September 17th, 1920 in Ralph Hayes Hupmobile Auto Showroom. Well, that's true. That's the birth of the NFL. But in that Hupmobile Auto Showroom was a man that was born on May 28th, 1888 in Prague, Oklahoma. Well, not in Prague, Oklahoma, because at the time it wasn't even in existence. This was an Indian reservation. And the next time you're able to go to the Professional Football Hall of Fame, you will see a statue of this man in the main showroom. Yes, that guy is Jim Thorpe. So although the NFL was not created on May 28th of 1888, (laughs) The grassroots, it was uh, planted because that seed would blossom into this oak of an individual that would end up being the face and the notoriety for the NFL in the early years, September 17th, 1920 again. But this week's guest is going to take us to a time before the NFL, a time when Jim Thorpe and his coach would end up helping create modern football. This week's guest is Steve Shankin. And he stops by to share some stories from his book, Undefeated, Jim Thorpe and the Carlisle Indian School Football Team. And in this interview, you're going to hear some of the fascinating stories of early football history from this just tiny little school from the middle of nowhere era that most don't even know about. Many of them have been forgotten about. And I'll go ahead and leave links to this book and also Steve's website in the show notes, which by the way, you can get there through your podcast player or by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com, which will now take you to my page on the Sports History Network, the headquarters for your favorite sports yesteryear. Now, this is a network at the very early stages. So if you know of a podcast that you think should be on the network that's already out there, very good, gives you lots of good gridiron or other sports history knowledge nuggets, Or even if you're looking to start your own history sports show about a team, a league, or even just a sport in general, go over to sportshistorynetwork.com, check it out, because there's going to be a lot more coming down the road. But for now, let's get into the interview about the Carlisle Indian School football team with Mr. Steve Shankin. Before that, uh, the book Undefeated, Jim Thorpe, Pop Warner, and the Carlisle Indians, from your site, it says the team that invented football. Why did you take on this project? What drove you to do that? 
Yeah, that goes back to uh, well. I mean, I write these nonfiction books uh, for a living, and so I'm always looking for stories that can't make anything up in, in a true story. I always wanted to write a sports story, and I've always been a sports fan and looking for that perfect, you know, a story that was about sports, but also about something bigger. And this this really captured my attention for for both of those reasons. It has great sports action. You need that. Because even if a game or a race or something took place 80, 100 years ago, it can still be really exciting to read about or watch in a movie. I'm not sure why, actually. It just really works. Um, you know, but the same reason football highlights, it, it, you get excited watching highlights of an old Super Bowl or something. It just works. But it also had this very human story, an important story about Jim Thorpe and, and this place called the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania where he, where he was sent as a teenager. And how those um, the kids there put together a team that really did invent modern football, and so it had all these elements in one true story. So of course, that's where uh, that's where I wanted to go. Yeah, and you mentioned Jim Thorpe ended up at Carlisle School. Well, let's go back a little bit. Let's go to Jim Thorpe's origin story. How did he go from you know the Native American in the middle of Oklahoma to being at Carlisle? Yeah, not. Not on his own free will, really. I mean, you're right. He grew up in Oklahoma before it was uh, Oklahoma, Indian territory. And and what happened was he was sent to a series of schools, Indian schools, which he really hated, partly because uh, they just had a very cruel and, and racist system of of teaching these kids. But also, he just wasn't the kind of sit-still-in-class uh, kind of kid. I think he'd have trouble in school today, you know, for that exact same reason. And they'd give him some sort of diagnosis probably, but he just wasn't, he, he wanted to be outside. He was a smart guy, but he just wanted, he needed to be outside running around at least some of the day. And he didn't love rules. He really couldn't stand being told what to do. So when he, when he would get sent to a school, he would run away and including he got sent to Kansas. It was 200 miles from home and he, he walked home. When he was, I think, 11. And that just tells you, gives you a lot about his determination, uh, you know, but also his stamina. He's just going to do what he's going to do. And so he walked for a week to get back home. And his dad was furious. His mother had died. And, and he just, uh, he just couldn't handle Jim. And they, 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 they clashed. And eventually, the father, his father found out about this school, the Carlisle. Indian school in Pennsylvania and, and, and arranged to send him there. And it was basically because it was too far away for a gym to walk home. You know, he said, you're going to go there and you're going to get this education. And what was the reasoning for this Carlisle school out in Pennsylvania? What did, was there a specialty there involved? Yeah, that was really the first of, of what became a many, what became kind of known as Indian schools. But this was founded by an army officer who had fought Native Americans in the in the Midwest and West, and his mind in his mind he was really trying to do a good thing. That's very controversial to this day. This guy Pratt is very very controversial, but he started this school. He, he got permission from the army to use this base, this unused land in Carlisle, to 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 build a school. And his idea was he would take children from these newly formed reservations and bring them to Pennsylvania in the East and basically teach them 
to be what he, in his mind, teach them to be American. Obviously, they were American. They were already. But he, he meant basically to teach them uh, a more traditional white American education. And that it was it was cruel to kids because they, they showed up at the school and it was like being on another planet. They didn't know the language. The clothing was different. Everything was foreign. In many cases, they had didn't want to be there and some their families didn't even want them to be there. So there's a lot of controversy behind the school. But I think that uh, one of the one of the things that some of the the boy students did there was begin playing football. I think it was a way of, it was a way of coping with the situation. It was a way of taking control of some small aspect of their lives and and also just a way of challenge. They, they loved the idea of of challenging other schools and seeing what they could do. Football does often. I mean, I play football myself, and there's that different type of camaraderie. Uh, do you think that it had any? The reason why they were so good had anything to do with the troubles they had to overcome together, the pains and things like that? Yeah, that's got that's got to be true. I mean, they started in the 1890s, and and they really they set out with this goal of being: we're not just going to play; we're going to be the best. You know, we're going to be the best team. And it you just couldn't come up with a more impractical plan, really. I mean, they was it was a tiny school with a small student body. They didn't even have a coach at that point. They didn't have a field of their own other than just a piece of grass. They never had a stadium, really, of their own. And so they had to play all their games on the road. And when they would go places, they were the Indian team, you know, and they were treated that way as almost an invading force. And so, yeah, they had to pull together in a way, even beyond what a normal, and that's always true in any, in any close knit team, but these guys really had to. And, and I, that, you're right. That had to be part of what allowed them to achieve this impossible goal. And you mentioned they didn't really have a coach at the beginning, but then there's another coach that would come along and he'd be pretty famous in football. And there's even leagues named after him now, as far as for children. Uh, let's talk about Pop Warner and his origin story getting into Carlisle. Yes, a great element of this story as well. And he had his own story. He grew up in the farm in Western New York and did not dream of of a life of sport. There really was no such thing as a life in sports really in those days. His father wanted him to be a lawyer. He tried law school. Uh, he actually ended up going to Cornell. He, he wasn't really a, a huge fan though of um, of the law or the idea of working in a suit all day. And, and he was a big guy. That's the one thing he had going for him in terms of sports. He was probably 6'2", you know, 220, 230. That's a big guy for those days for for football. And so when, when the the team saw him, they said, hey, congratulations, you're our new left tackle. <laughs> you know, and he said, I don't know how to play. I've never seen football. I said, don't worry, just hit the guy in front of you. We'll show you what to do. And, and there really wasn't much to football in those days uh, at all. So he did learn very quickly. And in fact, very quickly, even as a player, he started thinking, about strategy, which people just didn't do. I mean, it was a pretty new game. It was, there was, you weren't allowed to pass in those days. Every play was more or less a, the same sort of running play. Either the quarterback or a, or, or running back getting the ball and, and basically the two sides ramming together. There wasn't the idea of, of introducing deception and uh, trickery and, and even misdirection. It just didn't exist. And so he started thinking about that. And he was quite innovative, even as a as a student. And he came up with 
with what plays that would evolve into things like reverses and things and 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 they just blew people's minds and so he started to think when he graduated and realized he couldn't stand to be a lawyer he he started looking for jobs as a football coach and then how did that transition go from graduating and can't stand to be a lawyer how did he end up in carlisle it took a while he coached at a few different schools and moved around a little bit. He ended up coming back and coaching at Cornell, which was a good gig. And he did well there, but he was always kind of in trouble. Ne- never had much much security as far as his job went, which a lot of coaches could probably relate to. But what really opened his eyes, what changed the course of his life, was when Carlisle came to play uh, in, in Ithaca at Cornell. And Cornell was a, was a big-time football school in those days. And and Carlisle played everybody. Even from the earliest days, they, they went after the top teams, which in those days, it's funny to think of it now, but there was a so-called Big Four. You're talking about Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and the University of Pennsylvania. And actually, football fans, even really knowledgeable college football fans, might be surprised if they looked at the list of national champions because the first something like 30 of them are just those four schools. I mean, that's just, I'm not exaggerating. It's just the big four. And so for Carlisle, they, they look at that and they say, man, we're going to be, we're going to be, make it the big five, you know? And so Ithaca, Carlisle um, would play everyone, including um, Cornell, which was right up there too, another elite school. And when they played, Pop saw them and was just really impressed. I mean, Cornell ended up winning that game. In a close game, but he just saw in those athletes. First of all, he saw that they 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 weren't coached. They had they did not have a full time coach, so they weren't very well prepared. But they had an athleticism and a heart that you just can't teach. And so when he realized he needed to be looking for another job, he went there. He, he went to Pennsylvania and introduced himself to General Pratt, who ran the school, and said, "I'm, you know, I'd like to be your new coach." Now, you said that they wanted to become the Big Five or part of the Big Five now. Was it something to do with General Pratt that kind of prompted that and pushed it? Or were there other uh, people that were involved in that? Uh, Pratt talked. I mean, he, he he didn't like the idea of them playing football, at least at first. he he. It was a very, I mean, even by today's standards, a very dangerous, violent game. I mean... There were years when 10, 15 or more students a year would die playing football. And he didn't, that wasn't what the school was for as far as he was concerned. But the kids the, were, were determined to play. And so he said, all right, well, at least if you're going to play, be be very good, you know. And But that, he did, they didn't need that encouragement. That was their, that really came, was self-directed because it was such an audacious goal to think that they could, go and play these top schools but they started right away i mean they, there was one they would go from week to week just from one of these campuses to the next again playing all their games on the road and and they would just get crushed at first just what you would expect they would they would get run over because these guys the, these other schools had much bigger players they had 50 60 guys of coaches assistant coaches practice facilities and Carlisle would show up with 15 players. You know, you really weren't expected to come out. You played offense and defense and special teams. Uh, It was really looked down upon to come out of the game, even if you were injured. 
And so, of course, at school with a small student body and a small a small team like that would be really disadvantaged in in these big games. And they weren't. Not unsurprisingly, they they lost a lot of times before they were able to start turning that around. What was the uh, turning point for them? It was a combination of things. And Pop Warner was a big part of it. I mean, he came and they, they started, they took a, a big leap forward because it was a combination of the athletic talent and the, the skill and the passion and intelligence they had. But when you put it into a system with an innovative coach, they, they, they leapt into the, the big time right away and, and started winning. I think they, they beat Pennsylvania that first year, which was, which was a huge deal to beat one of those top teams, go to on the road in Philadelphia and win there. And so right away there, there, um, what would, there were football rankings too. It's fun to look back at the, they didn't do them week by week and it wasn't so obsessive as it is now, but there were end of the year ranks and rankings and they, they, they pretty quickly became what you would call a top 20 program. Um, but then when it really all came together for them was with Jim Thorpe. And that's, this is one of those things you just can't make up. You have this, this great group of players year after year and, and, and a great coach who was, who was very, in, you know, very modern style. What we would think of as a modern style recruiter. He would go around and, and, and just very aggressively try to get the best athletes to come to school. He didn't care whether they were going to be good students or not. Uh, and he just wanted them on campus playing. They'll take care of classes later, you know. Um, and But then when Jim Thorpe came, I mean, Jim Thorpe just happened to be the greatest athlete in the world. Only no one knew it. You know, he co- he showed up at school, 13, 14 years old, skinny kid, not on any teams. And it wasn't until he was 19 that he walked onto the, the Carlisle practice field in 1907, which is really kind of the beginning of their, their the glory years of the, the Carlisle team and said, I want to play football. That's where I started the book because it was such a dramatic scene. I wanted that kind of classic opening scene to a sports story. And so I start with him walking onto the football field in borrowed clothes and the team is already practicing. They're already a big deal. The Carlisle football team is a big deal. And he says, I want to play. And Pop Warner says, you can't, you're too skinny. You can't play football. Uh, you're on the track team. Just be be happy you're on the track team. And he was a good athlete. He could do everything. But he was thin in those days. And so, uh, but Jim, again, you see that determination. He said, no, no, I want to play football. And and Pop decided to give him a chance just to basically prove him wrong. He said, we'll use you for, we'll play a game we call tackle practice. So you stand on the goal line, pretend you just received a kickoff, and everybody's going to tackle you. <laughs> That's it. That's the practice. And uh, this this is just straight out of a movie. I mean, it would just be beautiful to see this on screen where he gets the ball and right away just shows instinctively. And he played pickup games with his friends, but instinctively a combination of speed and agility and power that simply hadn't existed in one player before. It was very raw, but he just ran through or over or around, you know, this really elite team. And they say that uh, Pop, who's constantly uh, smoking on the sideline, they said the cigarette literally fell out of his mouth when he saw when he saw what this kid could do. And so, you know, naturally by the end of that tryout, okay, kid, you're on the football team. 
And so that's when it really came together. They had some, they had a lot of other really good players too. So it's just like, like any great team, it's never one thing. It's always a bunch of, a bunch of factors coming together at just the right time. So 1907, you said is when Jim Thorpe really joined the team and then they started to really take off from there. Yes. They, they, uh, Again, they started, they were always playing their big rivals, um, Pennsylvania. They played them every year. And uh, Harvard was the, what was the Super Bowl for them in those days. They were going to Boston, playing on the road in that big stadium. They had this, what, what then seemed like a huge concrete football stadium, the first of its kind. It's still there, actually. It's now it seems kind of quaint and old, and it is. But in those days, that was the, the state of the art. And so, yeah, they set their sights on those games. And the other thing we, we need to bring into the conversation is that passing. The football had become so dangerous and so deadly that schools started banning it in the early 1900s. And it really could have just gone away and just been, you know, we'd have the other sports we had, but we wouldn't have football. And it easily could have happened. It so happened that the president, and Teddy Roosevelt, was a really big football fan. And he encouraged the coaches of the big and it, and the presidents of the big universities to get their act together, figure out some way to save the game. And they met. To, this is why the NCAA was founded. Actually, they they founded it as a way, an organization of schools to try to figure out how to save football. And they had to change the rules, which a lot of the big time schools didn't like because. Hey, we're winning this. We're winning with the smash mouth, you know, same play over and over again. No, you know, no, no 15 yard penalty for <laughs> unnecessary roughness kind of game. But they, they saw the writing on the wall at that point. All right, we're going to change it. And they did add some roughness type penalties. But most importantly, they added passing. They said, we have to open up the field. You know, we have to let players spread out and introduce speed as a factor in the game. And, and maybe it'll make the game safer and hopefully even more fun to watch. And a lot of the old timers said, Oh, that's not, that's not football. You know, just like everyone says, anytime you change the rules or anything, but uh, so it, it hadn't really caught on yet. And that's what was so magical about this year was that Carlisle figured out how to pass. And that sounds Silly almost, but the ball was big. It was like a, a watermelon, and it wasn't. It was built for foot for kicking. And uh, the, their quarterback figured out how to throw a spiral, which was innovative. They figured out, you know, what if we take guys who are really fast, who could be track stars, and put, you know, spread them out wide and just have them run down the field. This, these were new ideas, you know. And so they brought all of that excitement to that season and it really oh seven there was the famous game in when they went to philadelphia they played university of pennsylvania again they're always underdogs in these big games and they they unleashed this up-tempo passing offense that nobody had ever seen before and they just crushed pennsylvania in front of the whole football world you know watching that game and that was really a lot of people really resented them for it just because they're the new kids now and they're really upsetting the, the old order, but they really showed a whole new way to play football. And you said the old order. I, I got me thinking Carlisle was, that was not just a uh, college, right? That was like uh, all grades or something like that. It was really, yeah, you're right. It was all great. I mean, they had young kids there. It wasn't a college at all. It was just that the, 
the the students there stayed through you know college type early twenties college age, and so yeah, it was this was just appropriate for for this varsity team to be playing the other colleges, but it wasn't really like these other universities. That's true. Did now in your research, did you ever find that they had younger players too that were not of typical college age playing on the team? I didn't find that. I mean, they didn't really need that. I didn't get the sense that Pop Warner was a stickler for the rules. Put it that way, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like if, he's, if he found a way, he he did stuff like that. Just sounds very modern too. I mean, you, teams get caught doing stuff like this these days. But he had there was a department store in town, and he would just put money on account for the players. And when I was researching, it was fun to go there to their historical sites there, and they had they have the old ledger where you could look and see where the players went in and bought suits and things just and they just took the money out of their accounts which was obviously not <laughs> supposed to happen <laughs> right you know, with yeah amateur <laughs> student athletes but it was going on you know everywhere basically but as far as age goes he just he would just take the best players you know he just wanted the best players and the, and the, and really people didn't stick around for more than the you know the usual four years of eligibility so back then, it was um, were the rules similar to now after the NCAA was formed with the eligibility rules? Similar, yeah, but much, just much less formalized. And but the idea, the ideas were basically the same. Yeah, you said that you went to that place. Like I'm guessing it was the retail store in Carlisle. Is that where it was? They had them. Yeah, it was a famous old the store that's not there anymore. So a lot of the stuff has been collected in in the local historical society, and they have things like those ledgers and and a lot of the artifacts from from the team and from the school. The school closed not so long after the the time we're talking about during World War One. It became a, a hospital because it is still an army base. There's always army an army property and they needed it for a hospital during world war one for returning soldiers and that was the end and now it's an army war college but you can go there you can still go there and get and and if you get permission to go on campus and look around and and some of the things are still the same some of them look just like the pictures of what it was like when jim thorpe was there that'd be very uh i guess taken back interesting type of thing to do uh Throughout your research, was there anything that, you know, you're going through and all of a sudden you go, wow, this is just like, I had no idea this existed or this like blew my mind kind of thing. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Some of it doesn't even fit in the book. Like, uh, And it kind of goes with what we're talking about, you know, all these things coming together. And then the majority of the book is about this great run that they go on, Jim Thorpe and Pop Warner go on together. But Way before that, they Carlisle played so many so many exciting games that I couldn't include. One of them was the first ever indoor football game, which is a great. Even great football fans will not know this. I, I challenge them to to tell me where where and when the first indoor football game was played. And it was in Chicago. It was Carlisle. Their attitude: we'll play anytime, anywhere. They would go out to California. They played anybody. And this was a game against. It was the University of Wisconsin. It was a you know good a good team even back then against Carlisle, and they played in a coliseum in Chicago that was 
just like a big concert hall. You know, there was no such thing as an indoor sports stadium and a dance hall. So they just removed all the chairs. And you can find pictures if you look it up online. And they say everybody, you know, in those days, everybody was smoking. So the whole place filled up with smoke. And they played a game inside. And at one point, someone punted the ball and it got stuck in the roof. Great stuff that would uh, that that I wrote, and then and then um, you know ended up having to to cut just like any any book or movie ended up having to cut back some of the some of my favorite stuff just to to get to these other years that we're talking about you know when Jim was there. Yeah, if you were to be able to write a second volume, you probably had enough have enough content to even yeah. do it. <laughs> There's so much. It's so fun to go back. If you're a fan, I mean, it's to go back and read. And of course, there's no ESPN or anything. It's just going, it's newspapers. That's all you got for those days. But that's, but, but it was a big deal. First of all, there were news, you know, Syracuse had three daily newspapers. Every town had, had lots of newspapers. And, and it was a big deal. Everywhere Carlisle went, there were, they got a lot of press before they came, during the game, after the game. And so, I I did feel like I was I almost got to the point where I was watching some of the games. It was really fun. Yeah, as an author, writer yourself, especially with textbooks in your previous life, what was it like reading the written word from the early 1900s and how different did they write back then? Yeah, this the style is different. Definitely true. I mean, I'm used to that. Like I said, I've done a lot of research um for work and different projects, but I mean, the sports writing is a little more flowery, and the, some of the terms are, are a little bit different. But it was it was more or less the same. I mean, what would you really want is this those kind of descriptions of those play by play scenes and the big plays, the big interceptions and fumbles and the touchdown passes, and and that's all in there. And of course, it would be great to have a piece of film of it, but none none exists. It, and so I really spent a lot of time. I basically just I looked at their schedule for all the years I wanted to to highlight and talk about and looked at where they were each week and then just looked at newspapers in those cities. And it's a great uh, – this book would have been impossible to research 20 years ago. Or you would have been going from library to library to look at microfilm. Remember that? <laughs> Uh, so now so much of that is digitized it's much it's much easier and and just tracking down which games had really good really good stories to them some of them you just knew all right when they go to harvard that's going to be a big deal when they go to pennsylvania big deal they had a game in in 1912 just this climactic moment game again you just couldn't make this stuff up where they go to west point to play army and that was just loaded with meaning for these players. Um, and so, yeah, just look at the week by week where they were, when, when, and then look at the newspapers for the next day. And it was just really much a lot of methodical kind of article by article, putting it all together and and trying to recreate these seasons. But I, I mean, some people might find that tedious or boring. I find that kind of thing really fun. Yeah, it sounds like, especially with all the other books you've written, you might geek out a little bit going to yeah. be able to look at that stuff. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, you have to be a history nerd, absolutely, and and, and in this case, a, a big sports fan. But if you are, then then maybe this job would be good for you. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I mean, so, and I was going to ask that question, how did you 
like what's the process? Because even for the podcast, there's of course research involved when I do the solo shows and same kind of nature. I have to go back in time. Uh, what advice, if you could go back to before reading or writing the book, what advice would you have given to yourself knowing now what you know? Yeah, I would have been even more methodical about just what I said. Because at first I was just casting around saying, oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. I would have really been, no, no, no. Let me, let me make a list of here's the year. Here are the games. And, and let me just start finding the key games and, and really being organized about where they were, when, and when the really interesting things happened. Because I certainly spent some time, months, just reading, you know, and just jumping from one thing to another. And I, that could have been more organized. <laughs> that, that could have been better. So if um, so, before a fan were to read this book, or even if they were to want to get interested in it, if you could sum up the relationship between Jim Thorpe, Pop Warner, and why you believe that they helped create modern football, what would you say to them? Well, they definitely did. If you look at the way it was played, the way the game was played before, and then the way they started to play, like we talked about in this this magical run they started to go on in 1907, they not only were the brought in this passing offense, they were they brought in an, an up tempo offense, and this this innovation of calling plays at the line of scrimmage, which drove defenses crazy. I mean, they wanted to say it was illegal, but there were no rules. You could do whatever you want, and they would. They would call plays at the line and run one play after another after another, which seems innovative now when teams do it. But these guys were doing this 100-plus years ago. Uh, they came up with the idea of Pop originally called it a single wing and a double wing and different formations. It became very popular maybe 10, 10 15 years ago. Remember when NFL teams started using um, snapping the ball directly to a running back? And... And it seemed really innovative to do the wildcat, <laughs> to do wildcat formations, and and it worked for a while. You know, a couple of teams really got to the playoffs basically using what seemed like this really innovative play. But that was a Carlisle, that was a a Pop Warner innovation, and these guys were doing that when he he did it because he had Jim. I mean, he said I have Jim Thorpe, who's essentially a running back. He plays everything. He was a he was there place kicker, their punter. He played linebacker, and he was great at everything, but he was really a running back. That's what he was born to do. So when you have this guy, why not? Why waste time, you know, handing off? Maybe sometimes snap directly to him. And all these guys in the backfield could run or pass. And so that was the real innovation, This the, bringing creativity to the game, making it fun to watch. And fans who came to root for the other team would often end up rooting for Carlisle because they were just so fun to watch. I can liken that to nowadays the New Orleans Saints and the way that they bring in different types of players and the way Sean Payton will still innovate even though there's been so many innovations. Obviously, all the great coaches innovate all the time, but it just the way you describe that reminds me of how He'll take whatever he has with his offensive pieces, and they'll find a way to make it happen. Yeah, that's always fun to watch, isn't it? To, to those coaches who come up with some new wrinkle and something new. It always makes the game even more fun, I think. Yeah, and uh, speaking of new wrinkles, uh, maybe not something new. Let's go into your other books. Uh, 
it kind of, there's a lot of books on your site that I saw that were beyond, of course, your textbooks from the past. What caught my eye was the artwork. Like, what's your, what's your drive there? What, what's your um, passion for that? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't always have that much say over the covers of books, which is kind of funny. A lot of authors uh, complain about that. Like the cover for, for Undefeated is, is a, is, it's not a photograph, although there are great photographs of Jim Thorpe, but this, it's a, an illustration. And the inspiration for that was the, when we were designing the book, it was during the World Cup that was in Brazil. And there were posters. I don't know if you remember, but some fans will remember those. They had really cool graphic posters of, for each, for each country, each team in the World Cup. And, and we said, wouldn't that be cool? And we actually, the publishing company actually contacted that artist who did it, a Brazilian artist, and he agreed to do a portrait of, of Jim Thorpe. It was really, that was really cool. When I saw it, I said, oh, let's, let's change it to this and this and this. But that They go, no, man, that's it. <laughs> that's what it looks like. He's, going, he's not going to do another one for us. But that was a time when, when they had a really cool, cool idea for the cover i don't it's funny i sometimes i love them what they do and sometimes i don't but i think that one got the got the idea across really well now that's a very cool how you had a unique like okay the soccer then i'm going to bring out the author the artist that actually made those posters i mean i'm looking at the website now and i'm looking at some of these other books like lincoln's grave robbers the port chicago 50 all these different types of topics that are kind of across the board what what causes you to pick a topic for a book? Yeah, you're right. I'm all over the place, which I think is a, a great thing, you know, because I'll spend a, a couple years on each project and and then move to something totally different. So it's just something that grabs me. Like you said, I used to write textbooks for, you know, middle school age. And that's that's still some of the – I still think about that audience a lot when I write when I write these books. And, and so textbooks are – are really boring we can all admit that you know and nobody wants to read that so uh, i want to do the opposite of that i want to find true stories that are really fun to read and so yeah lincoln's grave robbers for example that's a story most people don't know but these criminals in chicago really did try to steal abraham lincoln's body about 10 11 years after he was dead they they it's a long story to go into but essentially they 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 felt that they could sell it or use it, hold it hostage, you know, like a kidnapping kind of situation. It was ridiculous, but it's a true story. And it really, the plot was quite elaborate and it went a lot farther than you might imagine. And so a story like that, all right, that's great. I'm going to do that. But then I can skip to, you mentioned Port Chicago 50, which is much more serious. That's a World War II civil rights story. And so I can do that. And then you know, move back in time and do something from the American Revolution or a sports story like like we we're talking about. And I think that's really the best part of the job. Yeah, it's got to be very unique. And this makes a good question. I ask every guest of the show, I'm going to give you the virtual keys to my DeLorean. You can go back in time in any point in American history or even world history. Maybe I should go with you. Where, what of your books would you want to be a part of? Wow, I mean, we're talking so much about undefeated. So now I've, of course, I want to see some games. I want to see Jim play. There's some some massively uh, big games that the that he had this epic performance in a game, 
in Boston against Harvard in 1911 when he had a really badly sprained ankle and then a, a, a monster game at West Point against Army. So seeing those, which of which there's no film of, of them. So I really be the first one to see it who's, who's alive today, which would be pretty great. It's hard to resist. Usually when I, when I get asked similar questions, I, I go far, my mind just kind of goes even farther back in time. I, when I was writing textbooks, I became really obsessed with the story of Benedict Arnold, the American general became become terrible traitor. And that's mostly what people know him as, as a traitor, but he was a great American hero first before he became a traitor. And his story is just over the top. I mean, he would have been a good football player too. He's just, everything he did was super intense. He was a great athlete. So I, you know, it would be tempting to go back to the revolution and hang out, see what he was like too. Yeah, I mean, there's so many good stories of your books. There's not a bad choice to go as far as the DeLorean. And speaking of that, I mean, we'll leave links to the show notes of your your website. Is there any th- any place else that a listener of the show should go check out your work at? No, the website's a really good a good place to do it, and and I put up links to 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 you know between books things that i find i like to draw comics so i'll put comics up there on you know whatever i'm working on it's a really good place you could contact me there by email and be happy to to tell you more about any of these stories all right steve well thank you for joining the football history do podcast thank you this is really fun i miss football like everyone well how about that I hope you were able to gain some new gridiron knowledge nuggets about a little remembered school, or maybe not even a remembered school for most people because they've never even heard about it, about some Native American children that were taken from their homes, but then they banded together as a group to play football. And (laughs) this school was going to be at the heart of football in the football scene way back in the early 1900s. And speaking to banding together and why football is just so important to the fabric of many of our lives. I have another favorite football moment for you. This one is from Jeff Hager, and he recalls a moment he'd like to go back and sit in the booth for. If I could sit in the TV booth for any NFL game in history, I would choose one called by the CBS team of Pat Summerall and Tom Brookshire. Since I was a big Vikings fan in the 70s, I will pick the 1976 NFC Championship game. I really liked Summerall's low-key play-by-play style, and found the on-air chemistry of Pat and Tom both relaxing and entertaining. Brookshire's voice resonated perfectly to me and brings back so many memories of the NFL during that era. This tandem was also outstanding on the This Week in Pro Football highlight shows produced by NFL Films. The specific plays I most recall from that game are the Bobby Bryant return of a blocked field goal in the first quarter, and the Chuck Foreman 62-yard run early in the second half. This was also the last ever playoff game at Metropolitan Stadium. And that's another segment of My Football Moment. You can share your favorite football moment by heading to myfootballmoment.com. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.